Welcome to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. My name is Ivan Mawarire, and I am a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where I built a citizens' movement and stood up against the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe. I was jailed for it and tortured until I had to escape Zimbabwe and now live in exile in the United States. As usual on this podcast, we talk to people that have stood up to oppressive regimes at great personal cost, and we try to learn from some of the things that they did. Today, I'm talking to a special man, and his name is Rodrigo Diamanti from Venezuela. And Rodrigo did something together with many other people that stood against the dictatorship of Hugo Chavez. And of course, he paid the ultimate price for that. But as we speak to him, I want you to listen and hear his passion and hear his commitment towards the belief for freedom, the belief that he and his friends really and his countrymen and women had and still have that their nation can be free. Rodrigo, thank you for joining me today. And I am so excited to finally get to talk about your story, the things that you did and what drives you. Welcome. Thank you, Ivan, and thank you for this uh, opportunity to tell uh, more about the fight for freedom of Venezuela. Now, Rodrigo, tell me about what you did before you started getting involved in pushing for democracy and pushing for freedom in Venezuela. What was your life like? What were you involved with? I was just at college uh, having an ordinary life. And then one day I started to see people protesting in, in Venezuela and a lot of them were older people, like my grandma. And they were being attacked by the police in a brutal way. And so I started to accompany them more because of solidarity with them than actually I was not being worried completely about, you know, losing our democracy. But then I see with my own eyes these evil eyes with militars, almost like laughing and enjoying of uh, throwing tear gas and rubber bullets to innocent people protesting on the streets. And I really saw that at that moment that we were facing a big challenge, that the militars were not playing games anymore, that actually they had a plan to control society, to control Venezuela for the long run. And so I, I decided to continue protesting. Uh, I think it was still naive at the time until one day, the 11th uh, of September, I was in protest. And then I saw a guy being shot uh, in the leg just uh, in front of me. So I helped him to recover and move him from uh, to another part. And when I turned back, I saw a man laid on the floor without vital signs, dead. And just almost at the same place where I was some seconds before or minutes before. And I realized that that could have been me. That if I were being able to help another person and move from that point, maybe I was going to be the person who was going to be killed. So I also asked myself, who was this guy? Who he was going to be? He was going to be the next president of Venezuela, and now he's dead. So I, I, I thought that I need to do something after that. I think that changed my life completely. Like after seeing someone losing his life, fighting for freedom, reminds me first, the price that sometimes we have to pay for freedom, but second, that I could not stop 
after that until we recover democracy. And I think I have uh, honored him since then because 21 years has passed and I'm still in the fight. And I think I will never stop until we recover democracy in Venezuela. You know, Rodrigo, listening to that, that must have been a moment, first of all, seeing someone shot right in front of you and then seeing somebody dead and trying to figure out, like you said, what was their life going to be like? Like they don't have a life anymore. You know, it seems to me like a strange reaction that instead you made the decision to carry on. In fact, you made the decision to get involved even more with the fight for democracy. A normal decision would be to pull back, would be to leave it alone, would be to disappear and, and run. I'm wondering at that moment, what made you make the decision to, to instead kick the next gear, kick into the next gear to do this work? So I think that the main difference was that actually the, the, this person got killed almost like the same place where I was. I think maybe if it's something that happened just in front of me or, you know, a little bit far away, uh, maybe it would, wouldn't have the same results on me. But because I knew that I was almost at the same place, I have a really strong connection with this person. And I said, I need to honor this guy because that could have been me. And, you know, uh, I need to honor his, his sacrifice. And I don't know, that's the way I saw it. And I think... You know, after that, I continued to the fight. And of course, uh, I continued to see more injustice and even more injustice. And I think, of course, that gave me more and more reasons to continue. Of course, you get tired. Uh, I never thought this fight was going to last that long. I always thought that this was the year. This is the year that we're going to, you know, win our democracy back. But, you know, after I think after 15 or 16 years, one day I realized that it doesn't matter how <laughs> many more years I need to fight. I already invested too much and I already changed. I think that the fight for freedom and the fight for human rights change you as a human being from the inside. So once you are this new person, and the good part is that you're not only starting to care about what is happening in your country. It's like you even, you're starting to care about what is happening in every country. Like every nation who is oppressed right now, you care about them because you know what it feels to be under that type of repression. So it's sad that sometimes you got to go through that painful process in order to, you know, become an activist for freedom around the world. I hope people, you know, can be an activist for freedom around the world without having to go through painful process like this, going to jail and torture and seeing people being a kill, but sometimes that's the path. And maybe if we share our stories, we can, you know, mobilize more people that maybe haven't gone through that process, mm -hmm. but help us to not only support the fight for freedom in Zimbabwe and Venezuela, but actually to commit for everybody to start to fight until, you know, the most, uh, the more quantity of countries that recovered their democracy right. became can become democracy, it will happen only if we support them because it's almost impossible to win this fight alone. Mm -hmm. You know that even. It's, it's very important that people support our cause. And I totally understand everything you're saying, you know, that the fight changes you. And sometimes we don't 
understand that change ourselves uh, until a certain point that we really grasp what we have become. And along that very line, I want to ask you about your family. How did they perceive your involvement or your acceleration as you leaned into the fight for democracy? They knew the dangers. They could see them. What was their reaction to this decision that you made or this changing Rodrigo who was now invested in this fight for freedom and democracy? Maybe you have the same story. I think they support you, but I don't think they understand you. Also, my friends, they support me a little bit, but at the end, they don't understand you. I think for people, it's really difficult to feel that they can make a change, that, you know, it's just a matter of organizing better. It's about, you know, learning more about nonviolence and try to be more effective in your campaigns for freedom. So they see you from far away and maybe support you, but also criticize like, hey, wh- why are you risking your life? Why are you not thinking more about yourself? You have to think about your future. I don't know why there is this egoist approach to success. Like, you know, you if you are successful, if you are egoist. If you think about, you know, your future and your future family. I'm like, no, man, like we're losing our country. Is, don't you think it's, you know, uh, important enough? And you know what? Right now, from both sides of my family, None of them live right now anymore in Venezuela. Mm. Almost like I have none friends from high school or from college who still live in Venezuela right now. Mm. Mm. So a lot of them who didn't understand me, and maybe they don't understand me even now, they all already have to suffer the consequences of losing a country. Mm. The same consequence that I knew that was going to happen if we don't do everything that we can to stop the tragedy that happened to Venezuela. And so sometimes I felt alone. And imagine that something that you have been feeling all this time because I know that human rights activists have to go through also to that process that people at the end, maybe they don't understand you why you're doing that, but you just do it because, I don't know, it's uh, something bigger than you, it's stronger than you. I don't know where it come from, but maybe, you know, the experience that we have, like seeing the suffering just in front of you, change you completely. And maybe they, because they didn't have that type of um, experience, maybe they, they didn't understand it the same way I did. Man, I, I can't tell you how much I connect with you on so many levels on that aspect of the people around you not understanding you. I mean, they, they may understand the value of the change that's needed, but they don't understand when you, someone they know, someone they love, you know, ends up doing it. And it's amazing in your case that all of your family, all of your friends now live outside of Venezuela as a result of the fight that you were fighting. And I want to commend you for that. You then started a campaign or a movement or an organization which led you further in on this journey. And I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about this campaign or this organization that you started, what the idea was, what was it doing and how did it grow? And then I want to talk about the persecution that you went through because of that. So I started as a student and I realized that the students in Venezuela were not paying attention to what was happening. So I saw one day a movie about Otpor, the civil resistance movement of students that fight against Milosevic. And I understood that day 
that that's what we needed in Venezuela. So I started to organize students and we come up to, at some point, 2007, we created a massive student movement in Venezuela with more than 200,000 students all around. the. Wow. And we you know we prepared for that like for five years. And that day I realized that nothing is impossible. Like, mm-hmm. you know, no, like the participation before that was almost like one or two percent in in protests of students, uh, you know, taking action and doing something for Venezuela. And after that, we were almost like the leaders of the opposition movement in Venezuela. So, you know, I understood that everything is a matter of organization. After that, I created an NGO called Un Mundo Sin Mordaza. In English, it's a world without censorship. And we have right now the number one migration crisis in the world. Almost 8 million Venezuelans have left the country. This is one third of our population. Uh, imagine the level of despair that, you know, Venezuelans have to go inside the country, that they prefer to leave everything behind and try to risk their life and walk sometimes by month from Venezuela to the U.S. to try to find a better quality of life. So I wanted also to transform that bad situation and say, well, all this diaspora, they can be activists for freedom of Venezuela. And we're starting to train them outside of Venezuela, organizing them in all the cities where they were. And at some point, we organized a massive world protest called SOS Venezuela. And, you know, because of that, the regime radar office, they went after us, you know, was detained. Thanks to international pressure, I was released. But some month after, I continued protesting. And then they decide I suffered a kidnap for six hours where I was being threatened with you know, by former police officers that, you know, I was going to be killed. So I decided to to leave the country, escape. I, 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 it was very tough because I had a prohibition to leave the country. I, I didn't even have passports because they took it from me. Mm. But I, you know, I decided to walk from Venezuela to Colombia and cross the river and, you know, finally start a new life outside of Venezuela. Rodrigo, you speak about this, about walking from Venezuela to Colombia. And some of us may not understand what that kind of a journey takes, just the the physical side of it, number one, the mental side of it, number one, because not only are you walking, but you are also trying to escape. You're running away. So you're not just walking and just using normal transportation. You're trying not to be detected, right? Tell me about that. How long was that journey? What were you going through mentally along that journey? So thanks God it wasn't that long to get out of Venezuela. It was almost like two days. So basically through, it's funny, through taxis. We change taxis, you know, all the way in different parts of the country. And you have to travel with without anything, okay? Because you don't want to look like someone who's escaping. And on the frontier, the best way to do it is through areas that are not surveillance by the regime. But the problem with that is there is also guerrilla in that area. So you have to cross like small bridges that are between Venezuela and Colombia. And, you know, you just pray that the regime is not going to capture you in that moment. And also the, the guerrilla is not going to capture you in that moment. So once you cross in the other side, I spend a week in a refugee camp. And then I received support from, you know, I have another nationality. I'm also Italian. So the Italian embassy helped me to arrive to Bogota. Then they give me a new passport and then I arrived to the U.S., I say this story like if it's something were easy to do, but it wasn't. Like I, I just remember, you know, when I crossed the river 
and I saw backwards and I saw Venezuela for the last time and, and looking down and say like, you know, bye bye, baby. You know, like, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. Uh, after 21 years, well, at the time it was like 17 years fighting for freedom in Venezuela, leaving everything behind. It's uh, it's a tough, it's difficult to deal with it. And I think I recovered just because thanks to time, seven years has passed already. And, you know, that helped me to recover. Now I think I'm, you know, in my 100%, but I think I remember the first three years, there was a lot of sadness of, you know, no knowing when, when you're going to go back. And the sadness sometimes is still up here. But you know what? What motivates me right now is that we're still in the fight. And I think there's a lot that can be done from the outside. And that's what gives me hope and, you know, keeps me in the fight with all the energy that I have. You have to be with us here to see, you know, Rodrigo's, just the emotions. And I'm, I'm just watching you as you talk and remember some of these moments, saying bye-bye to Venezuela, having a look at it for the last time and thinking, I don't know when I'm going to be back in this country. And then trying to figure out how to rebuild your life going forward. I have to say, I really admire the recovery process and, and, and you getting back to a place of, hey, we still want to rebuild. We still want to fight for the country. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you have done now that you are in exile and still wanting to help Venezuela. What have you done or what are you doing right now uh, as you continue that journey? So since I left Venezuela, I've been working on the um, documentation of crimes against humanity committed in Venezuela. And it was funny. We find a way how to work with the Organization of American State so they could uh, start an investigation on this matter. So I, you know, support them from the beginning with Luis Moreno Campo, who was a former prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. And thanks to that effort, at the end, the International Criminal Court not only opened a preliminary investigation, but some years after opened an actual investigation on crimes against humanity against Maduro and his regime. So I've been working on that in a daily basis, you know, trying to get all the information and all the data in order to make sure that one day an arrest order will be issued against this awful criminal regime. And at the same time, I've been doing campaigns for, you know, human rights and to explain what is happening in Venezuela. I also invested a lot of time at some point trying to get the recognition of Italy to President uh, Guaido. At the time, I, I couldn't make it. I don't know why, but, you know, the Italians refused to recognize us, recognize the leader of the opposition as the interim president, like many other 59 countries did. So because I'm half Italian, I, you know, I dedicate a lot of time to that at one period of my life. Now I'm working more in the unity part. Like I really believe that without unity, fighting against a regime is like the hardest fight that society can do. And it's impossible to do it by a small group of people. You have to be done by the whole society. So I'm working right now how to, you know, unite you know, leaders from the civil society, some from political parties, from unions, like everybody who has a voice, trying to see how we can come up together with a plan, with a strategy and uh, coherent actions and tactics in order to, you know, recover democracy because they control the militaries, they control the economical resource. So it's that we have a huge enemy in front of us, but society is always bigger. 
but the whole aspects of society, like all the members of society have to be united mm -hmm. in order to be bigger than the regime. And that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm happy that I can still do this from outside. Like, I think going back to the recovery part, I think I recover also because I feel useful from here. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for that, you know, I, I couldn't be with this level of energy and, and hope for Venezuela. Rodrigo, we're actually together here at a conference that's been hosted by the Bush Presidential Institute, the National Endowment for Democracy and Freedom House, and it's called the Struggles for Freedom. And this is, you know, where we kind of tend to meet, tell our stories and try to get the word out for people to care about freedom. If you had some words to say about people that live in America or that live in, in free countries about their freedom, what would you say? What is the closest thing to your heart that you would want to leave with them? You know, this is maybe the, the, the best society that exists. I think nations like this is like the humanity at their best. I know this country have a lot of problems, but if you compare them with what is happening around the world, you know, this is the more free society that I ever experienced. And, you know, I spent a lot of time also in Europe and in Latin America and, you know, nothing beats the U.S. But, you know, so first they have to feel proud of it. You know, Americans need to understand that all their problems that they're going through are very, very important. But if you compare them with what is happening around the world, there's a privilege to live in the U.S. Actually, I feel great that I can continue my fight from the U.S. I think it's a luxury. You know, you think that exile is the worst that can happen to you, but, you know, working from here, I feel so grateful. So I think, uh, you know, it's important to not lose perspective. I know that, you know, many, many issues needs to be improved in this country. But it's for me, my message is don't lose perspective. Don't lose the perspective of the freedom that exists in this country. And I know it's difficult to see it sometimes, but, you know, if you take a plane and starting to go to other countries and even the level of discussion of this country, the level of civil society, how it's been mobilized in the last years, it's impressive. You don't have that in any other country. So this is the healthier society considering all the problems that they have to deal with. Okay, there's no perfect society in the world, but, you know, the capacity that this society has of freedom of press, of criticizing everything, to mobilize assembly, it's incredible. So I only see progress for this society. I don't know, I feel grateful being here. And my last message is, please engage also with world campaigns. It's important to support other uh, movements around the world. It, for us, it's, it's impossible to win this fight alone. So we need, you know, the support not only from the government, actually from the citizens. And I really tell you that you will love it. I think fighting for freedom is one of the most inspiring thing that you can do in your life. So, you know, if you want to connect with any type of fight for freedom around the world, Ukraine, Iran, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, please do it. Because if you don't, you're losing one of the good things of being alive. That is, you know, fight for the right cause while you can.
it's always refreshing to listen to somebody who has that perspective of what needs to be done and how to do it. And I know that one of your passions is uniting people who have a passion for freedom and democracy together and distributing more resources and teaching, you know, around that. You and I were having some conversations about that, you know, earlier on. Just a very quick word about that. You know, what are you thinking of doing around that? So now we're trying to launch a project called Freedom Academy. That is basically the idea is to train activists all around the world in the nonviolent discipline. The nonviolent discipline, the leaders of the nonviolent discipline right now are the U.S. So the other day I was reading a book and the last call that Martin Luther King, before being shot with Lafayette, Bernard Lafayette, he said to him, hey, we need to make this nonviolent fight uh, something global. We need to make it international. And Bernard said that he didn't understand what exactly what he meant. But, you know, some hours after he got a, uh, the bad news that Martin Luther King was being shot. So he knew that that was his, one of his last message. And I really, I, this shocked me because I've been trying to do this for the last year before I, I heard about it. But I think we need to honor Martin Luther King. I think that, the nonviolence is uh, right now a legacy uh, from the U.S. to the world. The scholars, most important scholars on this field are also American. Erika Chinova, Marie Stephen, you know, Sergio Popovich is a great activist. But also you have Peter Ackerman who passed away and Gene Sharp. I think they were the most important two individuals who have found all the researches around nonviolence and, you know, both were Americans. So I think the U.S. should be proud about this legacy. Uh, but now, as, you know, Martin Luther King vision, it should be shared around the world because it's the only one tool that can really transform societies and can really help societies to recover democracy or achieve democracy in a way that is sustainable in time. We already saw what happened with Afghanistan. Like, you know, military actions have a short-term effect, but in the long run, if democracy is not being sustained by society, it's impossible that will endure. So, you know, nonviolence try to transform society to before get their freedom. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville used to say that the beauty of uh, democracy in America is that they were free before achieving freedom. I think it's something around that. Society needs to be prepared to be democratic before they recover democracy. And I think that all the idea of nonviolence and organizing and giving voice to all the members of society that are the values of a democratic society is what prepared you to when democracy arrives, you are strong enough to endure and last in time. So, I don't know. That's my new project. I think uh, even you're going to have to be part of this. And we all have to be part of this. And, yeah. and I think it will, you know, it will have a major impact. I don't know. Imagine you interview me now in 10 years. And if we achieve, you know, our goal is to train thousands and why not millions of activists around the world with this project. Maybe we'll see a new a new type of reality in the world thanks to this this spreading of the nonviolent and civil resistant discipline around the world. 
Well, if there's one person I know who can get it done and who will get it done, it is you, Rodrigo. And I want to thank you on that note for having been with us here on the front lines of freedom. Thank you for sharing with us your story. I know it's difficult sometimes to relive those moments. Thank you for sharing with us your passion and the things that you want to do. It was awesome having you with us here today. Thank you, Ivan, and thank you everybody who supports the cause for freedom. It's a collective um, fight, and the good part is that at the end, we are going to celebrate together. And as you listen to my conversation with Rodrigo today, you heard that. He says, I know that in the end, we will celebrate together. And that's a kind of a vision that you've got to have discipline for. And for whatever struggles that you are fighting for, whatever campaigns you're putting together, whatever justice you're fighting for, because that is the great use of life, to commit your life to acquiring and preserving justice for yourself and for other people. So whatever it is that you're fighting for, whatever it is that you're campaigning for, or at least have been thinking to one day get up and campaign for, Rodrigo says that there is a day when we win. There is a day when we celebrate. And we want to make sure that that day is not robbed from you, is not robbed from your future and your generations. Once again, it has been an honor sharing with you Rodrigo's story and the stories of many other dissidents. I ask you to listen to the other stories on this podcast. And once you've done that, do leave us a comment and, of course, share this onwards with your friends. Thanks once again for being with us here on the front lines of freedom. My name is Ivan Mawarire and we will see you again soon. Bye-bye.